in Father Flynn's homily this morning, he, he spoke about what happened in um, Sutherland Springs with that um, shooting. And um, the gist of his homily was that, that um, as he was listening to the commentaries on the radio presentations of this thing, he was struck by how often the response of people was to turn to the government, to want to look to the government to do something about this. And, and he, he spent the greater part of his homily um, critical of that response. Um, and, and to make his point, he went back and, and summarized Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. Um, I'll come to that in a minute because I'm not sure any of you know that work. But in that work, Hobbes um, um, makes the argument that basically, and in, in just a few words, that people are naturally depraved. He, he believes that there was a count. I haven't put the years together. Um, I think Calvin wrote before him, so Hobbes could have been influenced by it. But, but, he, but whether or not, he lived at that time um, during the early Renaissance when the rationalisms of the modern world began to take root and, and an overly analytical, I'm gonna, this is me, overly analytical and negative way of looking at the world began to creep into our world. It represents a, a, a marked change from the, Christian, from the high Christian Middle Ages, which was a period of extraordinary accomplishments and a strong faith. Um, in that work, Hobbes is arguing that we live in a state of depravity. His, his position is that we, we, at the state of nature, we are at war with each other, that the driving forces of our nature are pride and fear. And the only way to come out of that state of war is to make a contract, basically, to, to turn our powers over to a government with absolute powers um, to make sure that, to mediate any s disputes that we have to avoid violence and war. Um, and Father's comment was <laughs> how ridiculous that was because if we're all at a, if we're all, if we all live in a state of depravity, and governments are formed by men who live in a state of depravity, what's the point of turning the situations we create out of our own evil over to a government that's going to be totalitarian in its evil? Um, I think, and what, what <laughs> I went to Father afterwards because I was actually a little bit troubled by a couple of his comments. I was absolutely with him. I, I think I said this before. I, I, one of the great, I believe, one of the great gifts of my old age is to have him as a priest. Listening to his homilies is like listening to St. Thomas. He's not scholastic the way Thomas is, but he's always explaining things from a realist perspective and bringing in anecdotally his own experiences. It's, it's, it's a wonderful gift for a priest. But every once in a while he'll say something <laughs> that makes me want to go to him. And, and in the middle of this homily he was saying, the answer to this isn't law. And he was very critical of law, and, he, and his last remarks repeated that and said the, the, the answer to this is not to make another law. I have a feeling that what he was doing, I don't know this, he's, he's a libertarian. I'm close to being a libertarian myself, but I'm, I'm not. Um, but I think what he, I'm only guessing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, that, that he didn't see the answer to this as gun control, passing another piece of legislation to, I'm not sure of that. You all know the, the assassin 
was chased down by a guy with a firearm and, and actually brought, brought down by him. But um, um, anyway, um, I want to I use that killing at, in um, Sutherland Springs um, to move into what we're doing with Flannery O'Connor. And I know that may seem a stretch, but, um, and I want to pick up with what Father's doing because I think it's really important. What he, was, what he was basically saying is that we have turned away from God, and once man turns away from God, there isn't anything he can't do. If there's no God in the world, there's no reason not to kill anybody, to do anything we, we want to get a person out of our way if he's interfering with our own will. We've been over this ground before. You've heard me speak to it. I want to come at it again because it goes directly to the misfits comments in um, Good Man is Hard to Find. But I want to flesh it out if I can for a minute. My one concern with what Father said this morning in his homily um, was that the answer to this problem wasn't another law. Um, several times he, he, he left people with the impression, I think, I hope this is being fair to him, that law wasn't the answer. And he, and he reinforced that at the end in his last comments. When I went to Father, I, I told him again how much I loved his homily because I thought it was right on, except for that comment about law. Because the answer to our problem, um, I don't think is a totalitarian, given the government more power, but one of the problems we have in our in our contemporary culture is that we've lost a sense of what a Catholic should understand as the natural law tradition. And I gave you, when we did Dante, I gave you that handout that showed you the line, the natural law tradition. Positive law, human law, is related to divine law that has its roots in God, because the source of all law is God. To do away with law is to cut off one of our ties to him. And the implications of that for me are really dark. I'm going to take it a step farther. I, I may get heat for this, but take away law, and I, and I have a serious concern about this as it relates to the Baptist community. An, an antinomian, basically antinomian community. If man's depraved, he has no, he's, cut, he's lost his roots with law anyway. If the ultimate source of law is God's God and his law and his reason, and it is, and, and we lose touch with that, we're in trouble here. In our communities, and I'm going to say in our home, because once we undermine the place of law in our community, I believe we're, we're striking at the root of the, of the role of the man in the home as the one in whom that law is most invested. Vested. Take that away if the man is the one who, in our nature, holds that law in him, the one who sets boundaries. Undermine that in a community. Look at the Baptist community and the role that men have or don't have in that community. What's going to happen to a community? We saw this in the Odyssey. Take Odysseus out of the thing. What happens to all those men, when they're, those young kids, when they're growing up? I mean, they all turn into beasts. So the, the answer to this problem to me is not um, to do away with law. It's to recover a sense of the natural law tradition. What's replaced it is what I'm going to call a rationalistic understanding of law. Father didn't talk about it that way, but I'm going to do it here because it goes, it goes to what the misfits says. So let me, let me just take this up for a minute. The basis of law in the modern world 
The source of it is the social contract theorist, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. These are the men who are really responsible for formulating the social contract theory as it's been passed on to us. The basis of that theory, the principle of that theory is this. All humans are depraved. They live in a state of war. At, at, at a level of nature, we are, we are at war with each other. Um, the basic instinct that all humans have is self-preservation. We're <coughs> sorry, I'm going to lose my voice. We are motivated by fear and pride. And because those motivate everything we do, and our instinct is to preserve ourselves, we fight each other off in order to protect our own lives. So the view of man is he's depraved and he's essentially selfish. He will do anything to protect himself. To get out of that state of nature, in which men are at war with each other, we're at war, we make a contract. The basis of that contract is, I won't do this to you if you won't do this to me. So the nature of law in the modern world is contractual. Um, it's based on compromising. It's an, it, the basis of it is negative. It doesn't rest on a firm ground. It's saying, I won't do this if you won't do this. So what it, what it does is mediate against that natural depravity. The source of power for that is government. I mean, it's the one who will enforce that law. That's, we saw that in Hemingway. We talked about it in, uh, particularly in um, the short Happy Life of Francis the Macomber. The nature of the marriage there, predatory, contractual. They're in, a, they're in a rivalry with each other, trying to compete, aware of one of them getting better, having more power than the other. Marriages are a form of power struggles today. We know that. I mean, that's our world. Plato dealt with this problem at the very beginning of our tradition in the Republic. We've done this before, but... Let me go back to it again. The fundamental question of the Republic is what's justice? That's the opening question of the Republic. And Thrasymachus who is Socrates, the major interlocutor, the, the one who presses the problem hardest with Socrates, Thrasymachus takes the position at the opening of the Republic that justice is um, the power of the stronger over the weaker. He's basically saying that what determines justice is those who have power. So the basis of justice is power. Who's ever in power will determine what's just. Now keep that in mind when the misfit says, I can't ever remember what I did wrong. And I don't know if the punishment ever fits. I raised the question last week. Um, if, we, if, we keep, if we take seriously what the misfit is saying and set it against Christ when he was condemned, he was God. Um, 
and surrounded by accusers, he never said a word. I mean, you all got to remember that. Had accusations coming at him everywhere. For him to have said any word would have made what was already a travesty worse. What could he have said? And how many of the people who killed him were punished? He was God. I mean, is there, is there ever been a crime like that in our world? Either, either Christ was a madman or he was God. Because nobody could have done what he did, nobody could have said what he did. If he was God, and everything he did makes that pretty evident, and we killed him, who's punished? I mean, what kind of sins do we carry around that never get punished? We go to confession while people are in jail all the time. I mean, that, that to me was a serious question when we looked at the misfit last time. The, the Shumikas takes the position that justice is... Um, the power that the stronger have over the weaker. The justice is determined by those in power. And I, I think you could, you know that, we all know that. I, the, the British films that I've seen in the last 20 years, State of War and some other, that are looking at the, I, I don't know of, of any films coming out of the West that deal with the government per se, that don't show government as basically um, corrupt. Um, I don't know of a major writer in America today who did what Dante did. I mean, um, Melville gets close, Faulkner gets close. I've not read a book dealing with a culture problem that makes what the government does a major part of the plot. Um, Dostoevsky will, does that in Crime and Punishment, and he does it in The Brothers, which we're going to read. Because we're in a world in which that officialdom, the, the political functionaries who are in that world, reveal the government to us. And it's a puzzlement to me that American writers, and I don't even know that of British writers who, I mean, we, lots of films and, and stories are written making us aware, but it's, it's always treated in such a simplistic way. way. It, 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 it troubles me. Um, Thrasymachus takes that position. Socrates will bring him around um, by questioning his brother, who is a much wiser young man than Thrasymachus, and eventually comes to this position. He, he says that justice is, a we've been through this, so this is just a review for most of you, I know, that justice is the proper ordering of the soul and giving to another his due. We did this with Dante. And he said, there's no way to do that if we don't understand the nature of the soul. Because if justice is determined by those who are in power, people will never be just, they'll justly treated. They will always be abused. We can't determine what justice is without knowing the nature of the soul. And he said, there's two faculties to the soul, a rational faculty and an appetitive. And he gives the example of man coming to water with a sign that says, poisoned. If the man's been traveling and is dying of thirst, you know his, in, his appetite would be to drink. But if his reason says, don't drink because you're going to die, he's, he's in conflict with himself. So we're aware that we have these two faculties, the rational and the impeditive. And he said the impeditive broke down into two kinds. The desire for noble things, like truth, beauty, goodness, honor. And that took the form of what the Greek called phumos, Anger. St. Thomas calls anger the, rectific the rectificatory, the rectifying virtue. Without anger, we can't rectify problems. People today are terrified of anger. 
bureaucracies don't have anything to do. They want to do everything then to keep anger out of the workplace because it disturbs things. Um, Themos is directed towards the noble things. The lower appetite is directed towards physical things, food, sex. So the problem for Plato was this. Um, how can a government govern well if it doesn't understand the nature of the soul? If what a government does is out of tune with the nature of the soul, if it really doesn't understand human dignity, the nature of the soul, it will always create problems. And this goes to Father's homily today when he said, the answer isn't government, giving government more power. If government's not doing what it should already, if it doesn't recognize the, hum the nature of our, of our human person, all it can do is make things worse. Um, so, and one of the ways to do that is by recovering this natural law tradition. According to the natural law, all human law, all good human law, is rooted in divine law that has its root in God's nature, his own reason, his own lawfulness. One of the earliest examples of the natural law tradition is in um, Sophocles, um, what's her name? The sister, the daughter of Oedipus. Somebody help. Um, it's, it's one of the trilogies, the Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and it's not Medea. Um, anyway, it's Oedipus's other daughter. Um, her father, the, or Creon, doesn't want to allow her to bury her brother because the brother had been a rebel against the city, so he couldn't be buried in hallowed grounds. As his sister, she wanted him to be buried there, and she made the argument that uh, um, for Creon to not allow him burial, in his own community, even though he's in revolt against the city, was to go against God's eternal laws. It's one of the earliest examples we have of natural law. Antigone? Huh? Antigone, Antigone. yeah, thanks. Antigone. Thanks. <clears throat> um, slavery, abortion, homosexuality, I mean, we can go on and on. Um, slavery is out of tune with that law. So many modern laws are out of tune with it. If we don't recover a sense of that natural law tradition, things will only get worse. So the answer isn't doing away with law. It's, re it's, re it's, it's the importance of recovering a better sense of law than we have. We live, we live um, under a social contract mindset that tends to be totalitarian because it looks to government to solve all our problems. The more power we give to government, the more we turn over our freedoms, the more we lose our freedoms, the less capable we become of dealing with these things. So, sorry for backing into that, but I think it's important. That's all. All of that is, in some sense, a, a background to what the misfit is dealing with when he's talking with the grandmother. Um, so hold on to that. But um, let's see. Did I cover that? Any questions about that? To me, it was really important when Father, particularly when he said, you know, not another law, not another law, the law doesn't answer. If we cut off the ground of law, um, 
we, we make, we create a black-white condition for ourselves in which to think, and I don't think that's ever healthy for us, black-white mindsets. <coughs> More importantly to me, if you, if you undercut law and the source of law is reason and it is, it seems to me you indirectly attack the role of the man and the family. The seed of, hopefully it's the seed of reason, even though, even though that's not very congenial to the modern man, or modern mind. But. So the, the, the importance of holding on to what Aristotle called right reason, a healthy reason, and good laws is fundamental to our culture. Take those away, we are in a bad way. Right. The law, should we say don't commit murder with a gun, don't commit murder with a knife, don't commit murder by something? Right, well, right. That's the law. How, right. how many more do you need? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't it makes know. people feel good. Well, I guess. I yeah, mean, but feeling I, I good like isn't going to make things better. I'd like to see it fixed too, but I, I'm with father. I don't know. Would another law No, I, but I, I, if I were to press it, I'm going to ask him, because that, but the, the response, the reason Father said that, when he was listening, I can't get in his mind, he, I mean, he was doing a homily, but what he was saying was, he was troubled by the fact that as he listened to all these reports, so many of the people responding by looking to the government and passing more laws to regulate things more. Yeah. 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 It isn't. I mean, I, I just think he was saying that, and I'm not, I hope I'm, you people are not understanding me as being, my concern is that we don't do away with the law altogether, that we've got to recover a better understanding of the nature of law and what it's doing in our country. We are overly regulated. I, I don't know if you remember when we were doing, one of the poems that we did was um, William Blake's London. I don't know if you remember that, but he was describing London. How did he put it? The chartered Thames, down the chartered Thames, there were laws imposed everywhere so that the, that the river was seen as an image of charter netting it. That England, that England had come under a network of Charles Dickens' bleak house is a critique of this network of laws, this bureaucracy that was becoming larger than the culture. Is, is America very different from that today? I would say no. We are overly regulated. It, it's a, I'm going to say we live in a totalitarian situation. The media, the government, have control of everything. The answer is not in, in enacting another law, but it's not doing away with laws. It's getting, it's getting back to a proper understanding of the nature of law as it relates to the human soul. <coughs> and if our image of the human soul is that we live in a state of depravity, I mean, we've been talking about this now for three or four months, you know, going back to Melville and, and the importance of Calvin in that book and, and even in O'Connor's books right now. Anyway, let me stop here because we can, this is a wide open political talk and I don't want to go there. What I wanted to do was respond to the tragedy in Texas and, um, as a way of getting to O'Connor. Let's let's go to O'Connor. 
In Hemingway, Welty, and O'Connor, we, we are being presented stories that show us as Americans, moderns, um, living in a world in which people no longer believe God exists. And we're seeing how that plays out in people's lives. Um, when we, I, I went back to that genre reel that I showed you ages ago, you remember? And briefly, I went through this last week, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Remember, um, tragedy and comma, or comedy, um, represent that movement away from the garden. The garden is the central topos of the imagination. Most poetry looks back to the garden as a lost condition and, and um, sets up a longing to recover it, to return to it. Um, and that vision takes the form of looking back to the garden, so many lyrics take place there, or look forward to the new Jerusalem. <coughs> <coughs> Tragedy represents a fall from that garden condition, a comedy, the first movement to recover it, and the epic is um, the work that deals with a battle that has to take place that shows how hard it is to overcome the sins in man to recover this garden state. All epics have as their aim a founding, a refounding of a people. But I wanted to look at comedy um, because we've been dealing with comedy in these stories, and particularly um, what O'Connor would have understood as infernal comedy, grotesque comedy. Now, why grotesque? Remember I said last week, um, Thomas Mann, great artist, said that the grotesque was the true anti-bourgeois style. Now why is that so, the grotesque? Remember, if we take the divine comedy as our paradigm, we've got infernal comedy, purgatorial comedy, and paradiso comedy. That's the whole spectrum of our human life here on earth. There's no tragedy in damnation. That, that, isn't, that isn't what that aspect of the divine comedy is about. Um, if we read the Divine Comedy, even if we experience a horror at, at watching what these people, the state they've chosen for themselves, um, what we learn from Dante is that it's really a mistake to feel sorry for them because they've chosen that. That's the condition they wanted. That's what they've got. Um, grotesque comedy is important for this reason. Um, It's grotesque because it, ref it reflects the greatest discrepancy between a human being and what he doesn't see about himself. So in grotesque comedy, that discrepancy widens. That's what makes it grotesque. We can have a work of art in which ironies exist. Most, most great works of art have ironies. What makes a work grotesque is the, we can call it the breadth, the breadth of that discrepancy, that it's so great that it makes, it shows how ridiculous a person is when he doesn't know it. It seems to me, 
for a grotesque comedy to exist, the story has to be get set against final ends. Because it's when our human actions are set against final ends that we'll see the greatest discrepancy between what we, what we do and what we don't see. Now, is that clear? Can you give an example? Well, all of Dante's characters, but you can take anyone in, in uh, take Mrs. May, take Mrs. Turpin, take any of them. If you look at those characters against their own worldview, each one of those characters sees, sees herself against an ideal of social respectability. Okay? And each one of them thinks that she's good, that there's nothing wrong with her character, that she's proper and dignified and better than other people. If you sent them against final ends, whether they're saved or damned, or whether they really understand their relationship to God, then we see that there's a lot they don't see. And that, that, that gives their actions a grotesque quality. Remember, Flannery O'Connor said, the grotesque is, um, is produced when good and evil collide. If you have no sense of evil and you go through your life thinking you're proper all the time, then the likelihood is you'll not experience the grotesque, even if it goes on right under your nose. I mean, each one of these characters is going to come to it. That's why we'll go there. But the grotesque comes into play because there is a vast discrepancy between a character and what the character doesn't see about itself. Measure that character against final ends, and that discrepancy will widen, it will broaden, it will deepen. That calls in the, it shows how really foolish they are when they don't see it themselves. Um, O'Connor said, what makes a good story work, a story work makes it good, a gesture, an action, totally right and totally unexpected. It's true for most good writers, so many writers will find in a gesture the germ for an entire work. Henry James saw that, a gesture, a word, a movement that suddenly opened up a whole story for him because everything pointed towards that one thing. You, it could be an arm hanging out a window. It could be something really seemingly insignificant, but a whole world was exposed in it. And O'Connor <coughs> O'Connor gives the, um, the example of what happens between the misfit and the, um, the grandmother at the end. And then she says, why, you're one of my children, and then reaches out to touch him, and then he shoots her. In that gesture, the whole story crystallizes. We've got to go back. It, another way of looking at this is an epiphany, that a, something in a moment will suddenly become luminous, and it'll open up levels of significance that we hadn't seen before. Good fiction, or at least the grotesque, is a counter in O'Connor's mind, to sentimentality and innocence. She said, an overemphasis on innocence by nature tends to produce its opposite, violence. It's the presence of innocent in the world that so often makes an opening for violence. It's actually its cause. The grandmother thinks she's innocent. She hides the cat. I mean, everything she does, she, she thinks... Um, remember Leota in um, Petri Petrified Man? Remember the beauty shop? All the women thought they were innocent. 
they were horrible creatures. The grandmother thinks she's innocent. And she hides the cat. She says, go back to that road. Everything she does, she's innocent. And everything that she does leads to a violence. So O'Connor is very aware that this posture of innocence is dishonest. That very often it produces violence. Remember the one character that stands out in this whole um, O'Connor canon that we've read was Hazel Motes. Hazel is the only one who said, I'm not clean. I'm not clean. He's the only one who admits there's something wrong with him. And, and interestingly, he's the only, he's the, he's the one, <coughs> sorry, he's the one who runs from that mummy or that um, shrunken figure at the end, remember? He's the only one in that story who, who knows there's something wrong with him. When he sees that shrunken pygmy, he takes off. It's as if he's the only one who sees the implications of what that is. Everybody else is confounded by it. They don't know what it is. So she is so aware of the way in which innocence conceals a lot of sins. The people who don't admit the sins are going to actually do things that are going to bring things out, even though they can point their finger at other people who are actively committing the sins that will confirm them in their own innocence. Nobody in this world is innocent. Um, our, you know our kids have been staying with us. Um, I had a serious talk with our kids before prayers last night um, because they tend to squabble a lot. Like Our, our family's been staying with us for a week. Um, actually, they're burying us. That's a more accurate description of what's happening. <laughs> and before prayers, I, I stopped the kids for a minute. It's five boys. Um, because they all act innocent and blame each other. He did this and, and I, you know, that, I mean, those are kids. And I, so I had a very serious moment with all of them and said, I, I want you to remember this. There's something wrong with all of us. And I, and I said, probably more so with me, and I believe this, by the way, I'm not, that there's something wrong with all of us. It's the people who don't think there's anything wrong with them who cause the greatest harm. And I reminded them, in the Mass, one of the, one of the opening lines of the Mass is, how did, what has the line go? Christ came for sinners. It opens the mass. He came. Either we're outside of that class and we don't need God, and we're innocent, or we're not innocent. We're innocent, and we very much need Him. Every one of these stories is about people who think they're innocent and do these awful things. So this, the movement of every one of these stories towards a climax of violence isn't an accident. It's her way of showing that all these buried things, this dishonesty about who we really are, produce these awful effects. And nowhere more clearly than good man is hard to find. On the surface, she does nothing. Hide a cat, go down the wrong road, who cares? Well, look what happens. I think we all know this. Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but... Um, she said, characters have hard heads. I wish she had said also hard hearts, because everywhere in the Bible it's God comes to deal with hard hearts. I found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace, she tells us. She goes on to explain, this idea that reality is something to which we must be returned at considerable cost is one which is seldom understood by the casual reader, but it's one which is implicit to the Christian view of the world. I found, in short, from my reading my own stories, that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory held largely by the devil. Her way of describing her stories is 
The world is under construction. Grace is always being offered. The question is whether the person will be open to it. I think the story of um, Greenleaf is, illustrates that probably more effectively than the others. Because remember, I'll go through this in a minute. Over and over and over and over again, things are coming to Mrs. May. In her dreams, the sun trying to come in and her being glad that it gets held at the, at the boundary of the forest, remember? And all of those images is a circle. Mr. Greenleaf can't come in. The sun can't come in. That circle is an image of her self-sufficiency. She doesn't want anything coming in on that circle, the bull. Anything that intrudes on her reality, she wants gone. Light, visions, dreams, characters. She wants to live in her own world. Grace is being offered everywhere, and she refuses it. So, so that's very much um, at the heart of all that she does. I wrote this note at the end of last class, and it, it pulls together what I've been saying here. If there's nothing wrong, no fall. If there's nothing wrong with us, there's no fall. Then nothing we do matters. This is the misfit. This is, I mean, in, in, in a sense, he's a spokesman for us as moderns. If there's nothing wrong, no fall, then nothing we do matters. Social contract is in force. I won't do this if you won't. All that drives us is self-preservation. We do this to keep ourselves alive. So we go to war with each other, kill each other. Take God out of the picture, there's no reason not to. A social contract theory? Is that strong enough to hold us back? Obviously not. Look at our world. Certainly not in the West anymore. Not America, not England. We are virtually prisoners of a world of our own making. Justice serves the powerful. We're back to Thrasymachus. Lots of bad people are not in jail. And oftentimes people are in jail for crimes similar to those we commit all the time. If we look at our hearts, we're out of jail and they're not. What is justice? It's just a big question. That, and it's one that goes to the heart of a good man that's hard to find. So <clears throat> let's take a look at the stories. I'm going to do this very briefly because I want to get to the Greenlee story and um, Good Man is Hard to Find. I think, um, does anybody have any questions about the Enoch story, the part of the park? I think we covered that pretty well. Yeah? I, didn't, I talked about the importance of ritual, that you, if you take God and rituals out of our life, that as human beings we tend to create habits, ways of doing things to substitute. He does... He does everything in his life according to ritual. He has to follow these procedures as if departing from them would cause a problem. He keeps waiting expectantly for something great to happen. And at the heart of them, you know, is this pygmy. He wants to share it with somebody. It's all a perversion of everything that's natural to us. We're not to be alone. Our, our nature is to love and be loved. Um, he wants to share it with somebody. So Hazel conveniently comes along and he takes him to the heart of the park and we talked about the park, yeah? That this is a parody of um, Eden Lost with the two trees on either side of the opening to the zoo and at the heart of this park is this shrunken man. 
It's an image of modern man, the, the product of all the reductions, philosophical reductions in the modern world. This is what we've made of ourselves. And it, it's interesting to me that Hazel's the only one who seems to see the significance of that. For Enoch, it's a mystery. He's perplexed by it. He doesn't quite get it. Now, the fact that he got hit in the head, that Hazel knocked him in the head with a rock, and he bled and put his finger in the blood, in the wound, yeah. wasn't that supposed to be our, our hope for him? Yes. That he's bleeding? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, Joan, I, I can't put it any other way. I mean, I, to come down one way or the other and say, he saved, he's not, or, you know, he, it took her. But she left us with that moment, and, it, and she left him in that moment. What he will go on to do with it, that's part of the power, it seems to me, of O'Connor's story, that so many of her stories take us to a point of decision. And we're left wondering, because that's so often where we find ourselves in life, Actually, I think more than sometimes we want to admit that we're actually at these points through the, very often through a day. Are we open to them? Do we do 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 we enter into a mystery? Do we allow ourselves to experience a mystery and enter into it? And remember, from the beginning, I re, I've been relating to this to the Socratic Alenkus Aporia. Remember, the Alenkus is the the two aspects of the Socratic dialogues are the Alenkus and the Aporia. Alenkus is that questioning that leads to perplexity, confusion. Socrates always is dealing with these people who think they have all the answers to everything, and then he begins raising these questions, and they get frustrated and angry at him and confused. That's called Alenkus, where you start questioning yourself. And Aporia is that, that moment of being ready for wonder. To begin to question. Remember, that's the condition for getting out of the cave. So long as everybody thinks they're, they have the answers and they see everything in the cave. Remember, they're all here. They're looking at shadow. Here, they're here, actually chained. They look at all these images and they take these appearances or images for reality. So long as they don't question, they're stuck there. The interesting thing too. I just want to remind. Remember, the condition for getting out of the cave is self-questioning wondering who we are, what we're doing, knowing we don't have the answers and looking for more. For Plato, the movement was up out of the cave for the philosopher. Socrates is the one who went out and saw the sunlight. He comes back in to raise these questions for people, and they kill him because they don't, they don't want to admit that they don't know. In their pride, they want to claim they've got the answers. It's interesting that Christ, Plato knew there had to be a transcendent source working in man to come back into the cave. The whole direction of the soul for Socrates was to order the soul, but he knew that man could not properly order it without help from the gods, because there was a transcendent aspect of the soul. It wasn't just natural. Plato believed that, Aristotle believed that. The Eros was directed towards something outside, but once he saw it, he had to come back. Christ had to come into the cave <coughs> and make clear what that transcendent aspect was. Clearly that there was something there to know <coughs> before man could come out. Let's take a look at the end of Revelation. Um, I think we, we covered this too. Um, remember she gets, when Mary Grace throws that book 
on human development had her. She is she calls her a warthog from hell. And Mrs. Turpin, who thinks of herself as a very respectable woman and not deserving of that kind of treatment. It's interesting, again, Mary Grace is the daughter of, of the woman who, who sees herself as a pleasant woman. The pleasant woman, the mother of the girl, and Mrs. Turpin are constantly making snide remarks about <coughs> inferior people. They see themselves as better than other people. And Mary Grace is aware of it and becomes so angry, so outraged at what they're doing, particularly when her mother starts talking about she knows this girl, and indirectly she's talking about her daughter. I mean, it's just a, it's a cruel way to, and she, like, like the women in uh, Petrified Man, she presents herself as being very innocent, when as a matter of fact, she's being very cruel. Mary Grace throws the book, hits um, Mrs. Turpin, and she goes home. To her credit, I mean, she's not like the other women. She goes home, she asks her husband to kiss her, and she starts questioning. She, she doesn't know why this happened. Um, for a moment, I want everybody to just think about all the enablers in, this, in these works we've been reading. I, I made this point. Nobody in The Sound of the Fury, nobody in The Sound of the Fury raised any questions to that Thompson family. Nobody. The sheriff knew. Remember, we've talked about this. Earl knew. Nobody had the courage to speak up. They were left in their privacy. Everybody in these short stories enables. All the women in the beauty shop enable each other. Um, when Mrs. Turpin comes home and tells the blacks, they say she's a wonderful woman. Mrs. Turpin recounts her, her experiences with other women who talk about her as being this wonderful woman. Mrs. May does the same thing when she thinks about all the people. They say about her, look what you've accomplished, Mrs. May, how, how successful you are as a woman. Everything says, everything people say is how splendid you are, how good you are. So according to the social standards, they're doing all these good things. Underneath, I mean, the only appropriate response is Christ. These are, fair, these are whited sepulchers. What we're experiencing in our world, the world we identify with, are the Pharisees. It's us. Respectable, successful people underneath who are. She doesn't want to admit that she has any faults, just like the other characters. So when she goes to the blacks, they say, what a wonderful person you are. So she starts quarreling with God, <laughs> wants to know why, why anybody could have said this to her. Um, on page 19. If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then, she railed. You could have made me trash or a nigger. <laughs> and she gives away herself on the, you know, she, she so identifies her goodness with her class standing. Very British, very American today. Even, even as Americans, we think we're beyond that. God, I mean, what, a, what an illusion. Or a nigger. If trash is what you wanted, why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with a hose in it and a watery snake appeared momentarily in the air. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy. How does she see her integrity as a person? By the, by the amount, by amount of her work, the work that she puts in, because she says, look at the work I've done. As if, and wait, this is right in the face of Paul's, works are not gonna get us to heaven. We can be as successful as you want. And we know this, Mrs. May is the same, right? She says, look how successful I'm better than these other people because I've done all this work. 
I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled. Lounge about sidewalks all day, drinking root beer. Dip snuff and spit in every puddle. She's really angry at God. And have it all over my face. I could be nasty. <laughs> I hope everybody sees the irony of that. Is she free from being nasty right now? God, I could be nasty. Or you could have made me a nigger. It's too late for me to be a nigger, she said with deep sarcasm. But I could act like one. Lay down in the middle of the road and stop traffic. We're all on the ground. <laughs> God. A final surge of fury shook her and she roared, Who do you think you are? The color of everything, field and crimson sky, burned for a moment with a transparent intensity. This is an epiphany. The question carried over the pasture and across the highway and the cotton field and returned to her clearly like an answer from beyond the wood. She opened her mouth, but no sound came out of it. A tiny truck, clods appeared on the highway, heading rapidly out of sight. Its gears scraped thinly. It looked like a child's toy. At any moment, a bigger truck might smash into it and scatter clogged and the knitter's brains all over the road. Mrs. Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed on the highway, all her muscles rigid, until in five or six minutes the truck reappeared, returning. She waited until it had time to turn into her own road. Then, like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as if through the very heart of mystery, down into the pig parlors at the hogs. They had settled all in one corner around the old sow who grunted softly. That's a wonderful image of a nurturing existing between animals. Yeah? And, and it's something, in so many ways, it has a goodness that she lacks. This nurturing and being at peace around this sow. Red glow suffused them, they appeared to pant with a secret life. Till the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge, this what do you, fecundity, this life-giving, the source of all things in nature. At last she lifted her head, there was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dust. She used her hand from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound. Um, a visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a living field of fire. So as she has this vision of the people going to God. <coughs> she leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respect. So she has this vision of all these people with all the bad people, all the people that she thought was beneath, were beneath her, going first, and she and Claude and all the other respectable people bringing up the rear. Um, they alone were on key. Wait, sorry, she leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, and she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. Um, it, I have to read the end. In the end around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. 
but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. It seems to me of all the stories we've read, this is the only one that leaves us without a question of what happens. I mean, she, um, she sees herself bringing up the rear when she had always seen herself as being above people. And the interesting thing is that she's in, in the description, I think, and we're supposed to see that it has a quality of objectivity to it, we're not meant to question it, that um, they were the ones upholding standards and dignity and order. So in the social world, they were virtues. But in their ascent to heaven, those, even those virtues, as good as they were, were being burnt away for something better. Because what's better? I just want to be clear. What's better? What was it that she didn't know? Against the natural virtues are set... the supernatural virtues. I mean, right? The, yeah, faith, hope, and charity. I mean, the, Remember in Dante's Hell, the virtuous pagans um, were before the actual sins because they were virtuous, but they were in hell because they didn't have hope. They didn't have that liveliness of heart that hope brings. They didn't have that faith in something beyond themselves, and they didn't love the way God did. So... Um, to me, it's a, it's a wonderful affirmation of her character in contrast to the other characters because so many of the other characters are really despicable. But here, at least, there's something saving. She questions, she gets angry at God. Um, but she does begin to question and push, and, and then she's given this vision. Um, and it makes it clear to her that those things that she thinks are the best things in life are themselves being burned off for the sake of something higher. And we, this is not her end. She's going to go on to live. So at this moment, I think we're meant to see that something new is coming to her. What she will do that we don't know. That um, seems to me it's an extraordinary gift. I want to just look at the end of um, Greenleaf just very, very briefly. Remember, after she visits the Greenleaf family, and she sees the milk barn. She is humiliated and angered because she sees that they're actually doing better work than she's done when she's prided herself on her work again. Here's another woman who prides herself on her success um, and sees that as the condition for getting to heaven. Then she sees the Greenleaf barn and is humiliated because all along, she's been putting down the Greenleaf sons <coughs> and the father because the father doesn't work as hard as she does. And she thinks of the sons as no accounts. When she goes over to their farm, she finds um, it's more thriving than her own. Um, it, it forces her to question. To She can't fall back on her own assumptions anymore. It, it, once again, we've got a woman perplexed and facing a um, a confusion. Of, um, she's got to question her motives and what she's been doing. She goes the next day to get Greenleaf and tells him that he's got to shoot the bull then. She forces him out to the pasture and tells him to take the bull into the woods and shoot him. She gets out of the car and as he's leaving she says 
something along the lines that um, it's your own boys that are making you do this because they they didn't do what they should have done. It's her way of blaming the boys, her to set them to make them inferior to her own sons. Again, she's blaming, she's passing a judgment on them. All of, all of her judgments are completely out of tune with reality. In, in the terms in which I've been using all of our time together, she's a bad reader. She just doesn't see things the way, that, she misreads everywhere. She, she, she misreads in order to justify herself. She's doing what Jason did all along. Remember, he goes into the wood with the bull and she gets out of the car and leans against the car and dozes off for a moment because he's taking a long time. Um, she wakes up and she sees this figure approaching, emerging out of the wood and then she realizes it's the bull on the last page, 16. In a few minutes something emerged from the tree line, a black heavy shadow that tossed its head. Remember now, the sun could never pass that tree line. It always ascended below, so it never intruded on her property. She always sees Mr. Greenleaf as outside of that circle. That circle, I think, is an image of her self-sufficiency, her, her feeling that she's got everything under control. And it's a matter of pride that nothing penetrates that circle. Suddenly, she's on the car, and she sees the bull coming at her, and it's penetrating the circle. A black heavy shadow that tossed its head several times and bounded forward. After a second she saw it was the bull. He was crossing the pasture towards her at a slow gallop, a gay, almost rocking gait, as if you're over overjoyed to find her again. <laughs> hold on to that, as if you were overjoyed to find her yeah. again. He looked hold on to that. Okay, this is a bull. A, a bull's not intentionally malicious. There's no malice in an animal. An, may, an animal may act out of self-preservation. He may take a joy in, you know, in, I don't, in what he's doing, but the way she describes him is um, as if he were overjoyed to find her again. She looked beyond him to see if Mr. Greenleaf was coming out of the woods too, but he was not. <clears throat> Here he is, Mr. Greenleaf, she called out and looked on the other side of the pastures to see if he could be coming up there, but he was not in sight. She looked back and saw that the bull, his head lowered, was racing toward her. She remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in a freezing unbelief. She stared at the violent black streak bounding towards her as if she had no sense of distance, as if she could not decide at once what his intention was, and the bull had buried his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover before her expression changed. One of his horns sank until it pierced her heart and the other curved round her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. She continued to stare straight ahead, but the entire scene in front of her had changed. The tree line was a dark wound. This is what had always protected her. It was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. And she had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored, but who finds the light unbearable. Mr. Greenleaf, was, he comes running, and you know he shoots the bull three, four times. She did not hear the shots, but she felt the quake in the huge body as it sank, pulling her forward on its head, so that she seemed, when Mr. Greenleaf reached her, to be bent over whispering some last discovery, discovery into the animal's ear. What do you guys make of this ending? Is she, 
I mean, in terms of this question that all of her stories take us to, <clears throat> is this a moment of grace? Does she receive it? Why a bull? And can anybody venture a guess um, what she's whispering in his ear, if she, if she is whispering anything? Hmm? I think she's dead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. Think she didn't whisper anything. <laughs> by, that, by that point, she was dead. <laughs> As an EMT, I, I say she's dead. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get out of that world into this fiction. We're in Vladimir O'Connor's world now. What do you guys make? Anything? I, I, I think that was her moment of grace, and I think it was, it was what, what I find in a lot of these stories is that moment of grace is very subtle and requires some interpretation on the reader's part. For sure. But except for Revelation. And what I yeah. read was her last three short stories that she wrote, she was worried about, you know, if she'd been too subtle in some of her other stories. And so in the last three that she wrote, she made it much clearer that the moment of grace had occurred. But I think this is her way of saying the whispering in the ear was that she had, Grace had found her and she'd accepted it. Yeah. Jeannie, are you, you're smiling. Go ahead, come know. on. I don't know. Yeah, I think she. Wait a second, just. Okay. It would be, it would be, it would be more pleasant to think that she had found her moment of grace and maybe even was saying, telling the bull she forgave him or something like that. But I, I, or I loved him in it. return, maybe. Yeah, or, yes, okay, or loved him in return. But I, I, I can't see it. I just, I just think she was... Let me frame this for a second. Could see, wait a second, if you can, uh -huh. to see what you say. Um, the bull is charging, and um, it, it buries his, he buries his heart in her heart, piercing her heart, and then grabs her in, this, in, the, in the embrace of a tormented lover. And then it says, the tree, the tree line was a dark wound in the world that was nothing but sky. That tree line which has protected her is gone. There's a meeting of earth and sky for a moment. Nothing's in the way. She had the look of a person. Wait, let me let me back this up. She's been a woman who's lived self, priding herself in her self-sufficiency all her life, not needing anybody, priding herself in what she's accomplished, and it was on the basis of that she, that she could be as critical as she was of other people, and and tended to put them down. Here, we get a different description of her after the wounding. Sorry, she had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored. Now remember, she's lived this way for a really long time. So in some sense, we have to say spiritually, she's blind. Spiritually, there's a lot of things she hasn't seen or felt. But here the description is, she had the look of a person whose sight had been suddenly, suddenly restored, but who finds the light unbearable. Now when a person comes to that moment when the sight is restored, and the sight is unbearable, it's, the, it's not saying she retreated and went back. She's left there. And the question is, how do we understand that moment? And then moreover, when, when the piece ends, when it says, 
The bull sinks over, pulling her forward so that she seemed when Mr. Green reached her to be bent over, whispering <coughs> some last discovery <coughs> into the animal's ear. Greenleaf is not going to see that. That's us. <coughs> so she had this earlier revelation, her sight, or change condition, her sight's restored, even, even though what she sees is unbearable. <coughs> some discovery, the suggestion is that some discovery has just taken place and she's... <coughs> so go ahead with that. So what do you do? <coughs> well, with that, then I think you would say she came to the realization that she had been wrong all along and she was trying to make a change or ask for forgiveness or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think she found grace. I think it found her. Say it again, server. She didn't find grace. It found her. Mm. And and when I was reading this, is you know the whole thing is about you know her ordering other people around. Get that you know go kill it. You know it's messing yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, grace is coming to her, and it put grace directly into her heart with the horn, on purpose. Mm -hmm. And. But then grace itself, that, that to me was grace, and it was killed by her own order. By she, what? By her own order. She ordered. Oh, killed. right. Right. So right. even though she got it, she ordered it, killed. And the amazing thing is that only after grace got to her was it killed. It wasn't, the story didn't allow grace to be killed before it got to her. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, to me, it's kind of, you know, her eyes were opened, uh, I wrote down, her heart was opened, literally, <laughs> right. by grace. Right. And I, I kind of named it the bull grace. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I, to me, it was too little too late. You know, it's at that moment of, oh, I see now, but it's way too late. Because yeah. she had already ordered it killed. Except, and it just got to her before, yeah. uh, and if it would have been killed beforehand, she never would have received it. Right, right. That, that, that's, that's the no, wound. the wound had to come, yeah. Except, I mean, we still live with that, that description. She had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored, but who finds it. That doesn't suggest too late. It suggests something's happened. How we understand that is a... But clearly, I think it's hard to... I don't think the story supports saying too little too late, because something happens here that radically affects her. And it really does take her out. She's had, I mean, she really has controlled everything. She's had control. This is a moment that absolutely takes her beyond that. The tree line has vanished. That circle is penetrated. I mean, every, every, everything changes in this moment. So. But it all starts with the bull coming into her. I mean, Flower. It, yeah, it came into her, her space. Right. And, right. And her whole pursuit of getting that bull out of that space leads her yes. to that. Yes. That's so it leads her to everything she believes about. Now she no longer believes that way. I mean, she this bull is taking her on a yeah. journey. Yeah. Her, exactly. That's her, why, her, that's her trying to push agree. it away so is taking her on a journey to question everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I, All the language here suggests... Remember these Socratic moments, these, these moments of electus and apori. And the Socratic... Wait, let me put this differently. Take this, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Socratic dialogue, but if you take the Socratic dialogues, you know that, that Socrates engages these people in questions and usually infuriates them and it leads to his being put to death. 
Take, take those moments of anger and resentment that will actually lead to his death. Multiply them a million times with what happens with Christ. Because you've got God coming down as a lover, loving humans, experiencing the same persecution, except in this case it's God or God-man, not Socrates, who's put to death. God is put to death. And somehow in that wounding on the cross, the blood coming out, the Eucharist, I mean, you've got an image of a lover who has been tormented, whose divine nature brought something out of that far, far greater than anything Socrates could have given us, even though that was so important. What's intriguing about this story to me is this image of the bull burying his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover, this moment of vision she has when her sight is restored, you can't take that away. That means something happens here. <coughs> but it's not too little. Something happens. That's clear. Um, and then this last image of, of, of being bent over the bull and whispering some last discovering. And, and I, I, um, um, what Fred said, I think is so true. You know, she's left us with a... a, a a moment of interpretation. Let me, let me go out on the limb here. If you're a secular humanist reading this, my guess is you'd pretty much dismiss it all, intellectually. If you're a saint who's experienced tormented love, Paul, who thought of himself as one of the greatest sinners, you know, who in... Um, Corinthians, where he talks about the importance of the blood and the Eucharist and how you approach it and things like that. If you approach it with any sense of the sacredness that's attached to faith and you saw this through eyes of faith, what would you see? I mean, it seems to me you'd see a very different ending. Um, and it's interesting that the way Flannery O'Connor leaves this. I mean, she's not explicit. She doesn't give anything away. She's not making it easy for the reader. And it seems to me... There's a wisdom in doing that because she's really challenging people's faith to ask how deeply they go in these woundings and the grace that comes with violence. You know, that because we live <coughs> we live in a bourgeois world where everything's got to be cleaned up, straightened up, made clean. You know, I, I keep thinking, I've been thinking about that image, the parable of Christ where you clean the house and get rid of the demons and they come back and it's seven times work. All of these people that we're meeting here want to have clean houses. How much of that is an effort to mask the uncleanliness inside? That if you clean up everything outside, you're okay. Christ shatters that again and again and again. White at sepulchers, um, the, the demons come back and things are seven times worse. Remove, clean the house as much as you want. If you don't have Christ in there, it's going to go on. So something happens here in this goring. That whole life that she's been living is shattered, and that last image of whispering some last discovery it seems to me suggestive of something maybe we can't put our finger on. It, it's, it reminds me of that Benji episode where Benji was saying, I say, I say, he, want, he couldn't find the words too deep, that something's happened to her. And, and more of it, if, you, if you've been that kind of a woman and you've lived that way all of your life, and you're faced with a change like this, I mean, what words can come to you or 
secret words. I mean, it just. But that really is us. I mean, we are her <laughs> trying to keep God out, out and God's demands out. And so that happens to us every day. Yeah. Where God comes in and lets us know he's there. <laughs> and it requires our death, right? It requires yes. us dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how comfortable are any of us talking about these things in terms of tormented lover, goring, in a, in a bourgeois world where none of this goes on? Here, let's finish with a misfit. Let me speak up sure, for this woman. Because, um, let's go back to what happened and how she got in that situation. Her husband bought some land when the price was down and he died. She was there with two little boys, a broken down farm. She had to move him to the farm and then she had to get that place together to try to make a living. I can see how she turned into what you guys are talking about. Because for all those years, it was just her against men, for one thing. Always a man's fault. It's always a man's fault. In this period of time, a man worked a farm, a woman was a wife. So she had that to contend with. And still, she made a go of it. Yes. So I'm saying she had it doubly hard because she was a woman and not a man in that period of time, where the men would have gotten together and help her. But would they do that for a woman? Probably not. I'm just saying that she raised those two boys and she made it on that farm and she made it, it gave them a life. Look what she did to herself. Yeah. So I can Her see sons. how she would come to a realization of what she did. Yeah. It was sort of like her against the world for a long time there. Yeah, I think, I mean, go ahead, Joan. Do you want, I don't want to go ahead. I've got to. I was just going to mention that, you know, she, over, she was so overbearing that she turned her sons into kind of like uh, feminine, that they were not the men they should have been. They're really images of herself, both of them in different parts. We've seen that before. Marcy, I don't think anybody would disagree with you. I mean, she made a light. I think the question is, there are lot, lots of people, men and women, who have been faced with that situation forever. They will be people today who will be. The, the question is, not all, not all women, not all men, when they're faced with circumstances like that, turn out that way. I mean, but what, I can see wait, 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 let me, I, no, 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 I know. I, I don't want to take that away, because yeah. she did all that. The, the question is, did she do it with the right heart and the right motives? And you can, you, can, you can make this a generalization to apply to other people, but we're looking specifically at her and what she did, even though she made a go of it. And yeah. a, a lot that was in her heart was wrong. And the story makes that clear. So, you know, a lot of other, other women could have done it differently. Other men under circumstances, because the, one of the things she's showing us and this is, I think, pretty clear in the story. The material conditions don't justify what happens. They can be, they, there can be hardships in Mexico. There can be hardships in India and all over the world. What people do with them in their heart will decide the value of them. There's something, and by the way, this, I, I, I didn't point it out. There are aspects of this Calvinist character, you know, the bloodline, good or bad, you're, is in her character as well. She, she puts down people. 
She prides herself too much in what she does. So people can take on hardships and not do that. She did. And, it, and as the story shows it, it's a discredit to her. I mean, it's led her to this. Perhaps so, but I think she has to be given some credit. And I can see how she would evolve the way she was. And I didn't see any sympathy at all from you people about this woman, which I did have sympathy for her. And I, and I don't see it here, but I had sympathy for her. Yeah, it's a man thing. Because no, it's not. It's not. Ask Suzanne. What, ask Suzanne what her response is. Um, here, here, this is going to be interesting because when we went home last week, Suzanne had no good to say, nothing good to say about the grandmother. Um, <laughs> not because she's a woman and this is not a man's thing. I, I think Mrs. May in lots of ways is a horrible creature. Lots of people face those circumstances without becoming bad. You can't say that about her. Here, Suzanne, Suzanne's comment about the grandmother was nothing good. I mean, so I want to I go back to the end. Of, let's finish with the mystery. We've got to do this quickly. Excuse me. There's one line you can sum it up with. What? The story can be summed up with one line. What? The good man is hard to find. No, what's what the line? line? Oh, it's the, where the misfit says, mm -hmm. she would have been a good woman. She'd been she been somebody there to shoot her. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that says it all. Right? Yes. For all of them, <laughs> On page 11. Of what? Of what? Good man is hard to find. Oh. Okay. No, the... Um, She's heard the shots go off, and she knows that she's lost her son and her grandson. Um, the men come back with their clothes, giving the clothes to the misfit, and then he says on page 11, when she asks him why he was sent to jail, he couldn't answer because they said he could never figure out what he did deserve the punishment he got. <coughs> He keeps talking about the paperwork that proves it, which to me is an interesting comment on the Justice Department because it doesn't give any explanation. It's the bureaucratic paperwork that is the proof of the crime. So there's no sense of what constitutes a justice here at all. Um, and then he, he, um, she keeps telling him to pray to Christ, and he says... Um, where is it? He says, um, in the middle of page 11, Jesus was the only one, the one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can, killing. Now, over and over again, she says, you're not common, you're not this, you're good. There's that Calvinistic belief again um, that the proof of your being saved is the success you show in the world. So once again, we, we've got what we saw in, in Melville's Moby Dick and repeatedly in these stories. 
The sign of your election is your success, your respectability. That's proof that you're among the saved. So these people who work hard think that by their works they're going to earn heaven. Um, he's saying if, if Christ was who he says he was, the only thing you can do is follow him, give everything up. If not, then there's no reason not to go around killing anybody because what in nature would lead us to believe otherwise? He's got an, an essentially Calvinistic view that everything's depraved, so there's no reason not to kill or do whatever you want. That is, does, does, does he have any notion of a loving God or a merciful God or any inherent good in human beings? No. Neither does she, by the way. That's Calvin. Man is basically depraved. There's nothing good in him. The Catholic view is radically different. We were wounded, not depraved. We can do virtuous acts. They're good. They should be commended, praised. But in themselves, they will never merit heaven. That requires a supernatural help. So the people in these stories again and again and again have been identifying themselves with a social world, but underneath it there are these religious views defining who they are. In this case, it's, it's very Calvinistic again. <clears throat> Maybe didn't, this is her now. She's been urging him to pray. He says what he, he, he does. No pleasure but meanness, he said, as his voice almost became a snarl. Maybe he didn't raise the dead. This is the woman who's been saying to him, pray, pray, pray. The misfit for a moment that um, doesn't know what to make of this, um, he says, it ain't right, I wasn't there because if I'd been there, I wouldn't have known. That's a modern belief too. We cannot believe anything except on the basis of our own experiences because to believe otherwise would be an act of faith. So in every way, he's modern. All of his beliefs. Um, but there are Calvinistic assumptions beneath them. Um, the, the, we hear the other shots go off and the grandmother knows she's just lost the rest of her family. It almost takes her to her knees. She almost she collapses. She, she almost can't hold herself up. She can't speak. In that moment, the misfit shows a sadness and when she sees that sadness in her eyes, she says, um, his voice seemed about to crack and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry and she murmured, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him. At that moment, you know, he shoots her three times. He tells the, his, um, his henchman to drag her off and throw him. With, to me, it's, it's like a Holocaust moment. Take her off and throw her with the other. She was a talker, wasn't she? She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it, if, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every moment of her life. Some fun, Bobby said. Here's the group. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit It's no real pleasure in life. He just got through saying if there's no Christ, the only pleasure in life is doing all this awful stuff. He seems to have felt something in this confrontation with the grandmother. So I want to go back to the question that I asked last time. How do we understand this moment for the grandmother. Because the, the, whole, the action of the whole plot brings us here, this collision between her and him. In one sense, in her innocence, his malice seems to be a reverse mirror of it, the violence that it hides. They, they, in one sense, they are reverse mirror images of each other. 
And in this end moment, when she sees him tearful, she says, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own. And he shoots her. So I want to go back to the question we, we, we ended the, our time with last week. What do we make of her? And tonight I'd like to ask the question, what do we make of him? Have they experienced a grace? Either one of them. Has it changed what's happened or not? Let's take the grandmother first. Fred, you were shaking your head. I, I think she received her moment of grace. I think, I think the author's kind of leading us that way in two places. One, you just mentioned, you know, all of a sudden she, she looks at his face and she says, Why, well, you're one of my babies. And you're one of my own children. So she's gone from that person who kind of she was she was a lady and everybody else had issues to the point where she says you're you're one of my children so I, I think that's the indication and the second one is explain that I'm not sure that that's clear what does uh, that mean for her? Well, for me to me that's a total reverse of, of her how life you will uh, in, in one case she's looking at everybody else and and she's finding fault, and all through the story, she finds fault with them for one reason or another. And also, what, what's good to her in those stages is, is people who think just like she does, like the, at the tower, the guy that was in the tower. And it, there are a number of other pieces in the story where the people she's talking to are thinking like her, and she thinks they're a good person. And three times, in the course of this story, she tells the misfit, you're a good man, mm -hmm. um, which which has some connotation of its own. Mm -hmm. I, I know we're running out yeah. of time. But, so I, I think you see kind of a, a total reversal here in how she views mm -hmm. the misfit. And herself. And herself. Yeah. And then I think the end of the, 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 the next paragraph, you see uh, looking down at the grandmother who, who half set, half lay in a puddle of blood with her legs crossed under like a child's. And her face smiling up at the cloudless sky. So I mean, I think the author is telling us that that she, you know, she did in fact at the last minute receive her receive her grace. Yeah. And I don't know if you you want to wait and talk about the guy. Let me just add a thought, unless anybody else has a thought here first on the grandmother. No. <laughs> It seems to me there's two ways to read the grandmother's. There are two ways to read the grandmother's words. She's the kind of woman who would go through her life saying, "Sweetie, my child, sweetheart." You know, she wants to make everything nice and sweet. It's 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 her way of of confirming her own innocence. She's good and innocent. So when she says, to her, "Wow, you're one of my you're one of my children," or "You're how she put it." You're one of my baby. You're one of my baby. You can hear her talking about her son. Ah, he's one of my babies. You know that she keeps that innocence up. So you, we can hear this as the shallowness of the innocence that she's kept as a woman to this moment, and that she's keeping it now, and says that of him. So the negative way of looking at it is she's made him into one of her children. She's taken him into her, her world, or. This is where Suzanne and I were at last week. Because she had nothing good to say about the grandmother. That was 
Or, this is the way the grandmother's approached her life with that kind of the cat, you know. But once she says, well, you're one, of, you're one of my babies, you're one of my own children, she's saying this about a man she knows is evil. So in this moment, it's as if the, the question, it seems to me, O'Connor's leaving with is whether suddenly she's taken out of her innocence to take responsibility for an evil in her life by identifying. So for her to say of this man that she thinks is evil, why you're one of my children, suddenly takes her out of that world. And it seems to me, that's, that's my own reading of her. I mean, it's, it's pretty much in agreement with yours. But if you've lived this kind of life as a woman, and you go around talking about your family, you're, why you're my baby, my, you know, and she says this of this man, it's what makes him shoot her to hear that. What other language does she have, if that's the way she's speaking? But clearly, a change takes place here because she knows this man is evil. So for her to say, well, you're one of my babies, you're one of my children, means she's taken out of that world to recognize she has some affinity with the bad going on here that she's never seen before. So my answer, I mean, my response at the end is that it seems to me she does, and she, like so many other, she has no language for this. I mean, but, but think what, she's just collapsed. She's heard gunshots killing her family. She, she is shaking. Her life has been ruptured, violated. And in that kind of condition, she looks at him and says, why, well, you're one of my... So it seems to me this, this is kind of um, one of these ultimate moments in Flannery O'Connor's writings where a gesture um, perfectly captures her effort to find these moments in a person's life when, yeah. when, a, when a violence restores a person to himself, takes them out of that shell of innocence, the dishonesty about it, and... And like um, Mrs. May, you know, that um, restored her sight, but but um, presented her with a vision that was unbearable. What about the misfit? Sorry, Buck. But I do have a you know a couple of problems with with her as a you know. First of all, she suddenly realizes that she's on the wrong road. She recognizes that it wasn't horrible a, thought. Horrible thought. Okay, and that it wasn't a dirt road, and it didn't have these other things, and it didn't have all these hills. And she's coming to the realization that, you know, what is this sort of like reviewing your sins before you go to confession or something? Or, or, and she's not wanting to speak up about it. She's not wanting to tell, tell them. I mean, this is, you know, something. And, it, and that, I mean, that's a, that's a piece of pride that kind of gets yes. in my way of recognizing her, her you know, the type There's of nothing woman. she does up to this moment that's a change. Oh, I mean, yeah, right. But she it, lives... In denial, I mean, right. all of that. And then, of course, I mean, stupidly, I mean, <laughs> claim, uh, bursting out and saying, "I recognize you. You're the guy in the. You're yeah. the guy in the prison." And then, yes. And then again, I guess. Prison. That was real smart, wasn't it? Right. You know, that was. I mean, that was as stupid as as you can get. I mean, <laughs> or naive. I yes. Mean, whichever. All whichever, of it. Yes. All of it. I mean, yeah. but again, and then of course, I think there's a reflection again where I think she realizes that. That particular statement has really put them in jeopardy. I mean, that they're, they're, they're her, the but comments. But I, I myself here. wonder how deep that recognition goes until. Well, that's what that's 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 it. That's you know, as I mean, there's there's a place where it seems to be, and then it re, it goes back off of that. 
I just wonder about. I just think she lives in a shell until. Yeah, I, I, I think she's yeah, yeah. she's a very pretty shallow person. I think is what. I mean, what <laughs> Carl's got, he's jumping out of his. <laughs> I can understand how you can believe or you can kind of interpret things the way that you're talking about. Seriously, let's look at this grandmother. Okay. Keep <laughs> grandmother Carl. She did. Trying to convince him that he was a good man. Trying to say, pray. None of this was working. Come back. No, Doc, come back. No, no, leave it. We'll get it. Should time we? was getting short, and she pulled the card and she said, my baby. I didn't see that as a moment of grace. Wait, Doc, do you want to add anything? Here's the question, and I, I thought it, but let me, let me, wait, 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 we've got to do the misfit, 60 seconds, but here's, here's, when she says, and she's, she's on her knees, she's shaking, she's, everything's lost, for her to see, because I don't think she has any of your, by why, why you're one of my, some, something happens in that moment, and the question is, is she saying that in the spirit, which she's probably been doing that all of like, my little sweetheart, my, you know, she probably says her son, my little baby, wait, hold on, she says, she looks at him, and she says to the misfit, in that moment when he cries, why you're one of my children. The question is, is that in the spirit which she's been doing this all along in a shell of innocence? Or right. does, does she see something evil that takes her out of that world? That's the, 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 the question of the story comes down to those lines and how we understand. Wait, quickly, a minute. What about the misfit? It, does this change him or affect him at all or not? I think because when she says those words, and he, it's, he snaps back. It's a little bit about both. He was seen, by her saying that, she was, to me, is the devil incarnate. She's inviting him into the evil world. He sees what he is. He sees what that is. And it scares him so much, he just plugs her three times. I, I think he sees his evil in her when she it, says that. Well, the question I would, so a grace for him or not? No. Huh? No. no. Anybody here else? Grace for the misfit doc or you? Well, he didn't. Sir? I saw him go out with him. I think he, I think he received at least a, a modicum of grace. I don't think he will be able to live the same way the rest of his life after this. He picked up the cat. He didn't shoot the cat. It's in the rings. You know, it says she made a, a particular detail of saying he picked up the cat but it's lying. It's Bobby. If it been some fun, Bobby Lee, shut up. Bobby. He says, "Shut up, Bobby Lee." It's no real pleasure in life. It's hard for me to see him taking pleasure in killing again after this killing. I think that, I think that one line suggests to us that he's going to Somebody there to shoot, shoot her up. Day. <laughs> it says, first of all, from his perspective, 
he sees something, he saw something that was yeah. That yeah. And then the yeah. very fact that he saw it suggests that maybe he got something in the process. Yeah. Sure. You find that everywhere in the Bible. Um, hold, hold on. The other thing to say. The, the other thing to say about the misfit is he's a seeker. This guy, this guy thinks about things other people. The the woman sees herself as a Christian, even though at the end she says she wonders if Christ. You know, she. He's really clear in his head who Christ was, and he has trouble with that. Well, he, he isn't debating about it. He, he really probes things, so when he says there's no real pleasure in, it's, it's hard to see him taking pleasure in doing this. The, the, the hint here is that he may have been changed by this encounter too. So we've got this encounter between two people which in some ways are mere reversals of each other, changed. Is there time for me to say one thing about God, I'm really glad. I'm sorry we didn't get you in earlier. No, no, it's just, um, you were talking about Hobbes, Locke, and the kind of depraved state of pride and fear. And then later, you were saying it's our natural state to love and want to be loved. And to me, love and being loved is what lifts us out of that depraved state. And with the shooting yesterday I think you could even look at it as you have a community there in love of families and community and God and then you have a man who has lost all of that who attacks them you then have another man who isn't at church but he still has that sense of community who ignores his own selfish preservation for preservation of his community the guy who went after him you talking yeah, yeah exactly yeah you know and I think it's you know, the problem in society is that we're losing that sense of love of family and community and that sense of community and and so that people don't feel they fall into that yeah, depraved state. For sure. Yeah, and all I would add to that is I mean in terms of what we've been looking at here from Melville on, is there a religious belief that gives support to both of those things? Mm-hmm. Um, that make a, a real difference fundamental difference in how they look at human beings. Yeah. That evening sun, Flowering Judas. Flowering Judas is to me a beautiful haunting story, deeply Catholic, and in some ways troubling. So we'll finish our short stories next week. All right. Yes. Okay.